What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest, holy shit. Man, that was a lot of information. So you guys are in for a whirlwind of hormonal content. My good friend Sam Miller came on the podcast. This is somebody who um, is a coach in the industry, somebody I'm close with. We share a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues, uh, mentors, and and, uh, we're a part of a lot of the same group. So we've known each other for a while. We've shared content for a while. He's actually done guest blogs on my website, uh, but we've never actually gotten face-to-face to talk. So this is really cool to jump on a call with him. Um, and I'm excited to bring him here because I think he is one of the uh, guys that you guys are going to be seeing a lot of. Um, he's starting to make some appearances on podcasts. His business is growing. And I think his face is going to continue to show up more and more in the industry and in the media of our industry because he's a very, very intelligent dude, and especially when it comes comes to hormones. So today I had him on the show to talk specifically about testosterone and cortisol and we touched a little bit on insulin at the very end but really didn't do insulin justice because we spent so much time diving into cortisol and testosterone which are two crucially important hormones when we talk about um, health, training, nutrition, body composition, performance, all these different things. Um, And I think they're very misunderstood. So today we got to talk with Sam and really go into depth on these Hormones, not only from a science-based perspective, but also from an application-based perspective to make sure that you guys didn't get overwhelmed and you can actually take all this information and utilize it in your training, in your nutrition, in your lifestyle because that's what this is all about. We can give you all the information in the world, but if you can't apply it and stay adherent to it, then what's the point, right? So um, I'm really excited about this episode. Before we get into the episode, I have two things to tell you guys, two things to ask of you. Number one, Go check out the Boom Boom Elite. This is my membership site where you can join the elite group of individuals who are striving to become better. This group is a group of people looking for betterment in their mindset, in their training, and in their body, in their relationships, in their business, in their lifestyle in general. This group is not just training. It is life improvement. It's personal growth. It's personal development, and I'm super proud about this. Um, Inside the group, you get daily training programs, cardio programs. Uh, You get my nutrition hierarchy for free so you can get some nutrition help. The supplement guide, you get access to the group. You get tons of interviews from experts around the world who I talk with on camera or do presentations specifically for this group. In fact, I did a nutrition presentation and our guest today, and this is why I'm talking about this, Sam Miller is actually putting together a hormonal presentation for the Boom Boom Elite. So this will only be available inside the membership site. So there's a ton of content being poured into it. Um, and it, it, it's an unbelievable site, guys. So I wanted to shout that out because Sam is doing a guest presentation inside the group. And I know that after you guys listen to this, you're going to want to watch that. So if you want to learn more about the Boom Boom Elite, my membership site, you can click the link in the description below. Or you can go check out www.boomboomperformance.com slash elite. And you can see a video, a, a page that breaks down the information about that. Last but not least, guys, I want to help Sam grow and I want to help this podcast grow together and, and get more people to watch this, get more people to listen to this, get more people to learn and educate themselves better so they can get better results. So what I need you to do for me right now, you know what I'm about to say. Take a screenshot of the podcast, post it on your Instagram story, tag your boy at Cody.boomboom, and tag Sam Miller Science at Sam Miller Science. That is Sam's Instagram handle. Um, we want to know who's listening. We want to know what you guys liked about it, and we want to talk to you so we can see who our listeners are. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this atomic bomb of knowledge that Sam is about to drop on us about hormones. 
All right, Sam Miller, as we were uh, just talking, man, this is, this is kind of cool. It's like we're finally meeting kind of, even though you're on the other side of the country. Um, but we've known each other for a while. You've helped create some content on my website. Um, you're doing some stuff for my membership site. I've been following all of your work and we're connected through a bunch of people. So this is cool to finally sit down and just bullshit and um, dive into something that you're an expert on, which is hormones. And I'm super excited. And I know the listeners are going to be excited for this because this is a very misunderstood topic, but it's a very important topic when we talk about performance and body composition. So before we get into the weeds, when we talk about all this stuff, why don't you give the listeners just like a little bit of background on who you are, if they don't know, um, and how you got into the hormonal stuff. Sounds good. Thanks, Cody. So my name's Sam, obviously. I'm the owner of Oracle Training and Nutrition, currently based on the East Coast in North Carolina. I kind of got into the hormones rabbit hole sort of selfishly with my own transformation journey, and then just kind of natural client attraction to people who seem to need my expertise in that area. So it started off with personal learning, diving into the topic, seeing how it applied to myself. And then surprisingly, like one out of two or one out of every three clients I would have had some sort of variation of similar issues, both men and women. So that's really what led to me starting that educational process. And now it's been almost 10 years and I'm glad I'm able to kind of contribute and help educate distill those complicated topics and kind of present them in a understandable fashion for the listeners. Dude, I love it. That's perfect. So going off of that, what do you, what are the most common things you see? Cause you said like you're, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think like you're working with, I assume, you know, over time, hundreds of people. Um, and I can relate to this as well. And you're saying one to two out of three people are seeing hormonal issues, which is a lot of fucking people. So what are the most common things you see, whether that's with men or women? So the severity obviously varies, but I think just the nature of society, how fast paced we are and kind of overconnected tends to lead to some issues as far as your stress hormone response. So cortisol and testosterone balance is going to be really big in guys and females. It's, it shows up similarly, but it's more in terms of estrogen balance and what happens when there's a lot of cortisol floating around um, and can kind of wreak havoc, havoc on your body composition. So those would be probably the top two um, a distant third, um, I don't see a lot of, but um, sometimes uh, the thyroid can be kind of a precursor to that or kind of be out of whack as a result of those two if your body's kind of chronically stressed or there's auto, some autoimmune conditions going on. But if I had to pick two, I'd say um, testosterone, cortisol, and then in females, kind of estrogen balance and cortisol. So, I mean, for, from what I've learned from different people and just like reading and obviously researching and stuff the thyroid's damn near connected to anything. So it's almost safe to say that like, if you have any issues, you're probably going to have an off thyroid as well. So it's almost like we can attack these other things and fix that. Um, but it sounds like cortisol might be connected to a lot of things too. I mean, you mentioned testosterone and cortisol balance um, and connection estrogen as well. How, what is cortisol for the people who don't know? And why is it so important? And why is it connected to things? So cortisol kind of gets generalized. You'll see the infomercials where it's like, you know, cortisol can cause you to gain fat and fix it in these easy steps, but it's actually a little more complicated than that. So cortisol in an acute setting would help you deal with a short-term stressor or help you break down energy in your body just in a really simple, easy to understand manner. That's how I would describe it. Uh, cortisol is not really designed to be chronically elevated. What happens in our current kind of work-life status in 2018 is cortisol is perpetually elevated. And when that happens over time, it can kind of rob the raw materials we need for some of our other hormones. You also mentioned thyroid in there. Um, it is very much a two-way street with these hormones. I mean, for guys, 
uh, I remember reading something last week. We actually even have these little tiny thyroid receptor cells, even on um, cells that are partially responsible for testosterone production. So it's really, you can't really isolate them. Cortisol is the same way. So when you usually see someone with very elevated stress levels, it's going to make it a lot harder to have like higher uh, testosterone levels, higher free testosterone. And then on the female side, that can kind of have some different manifestations as well. But simply put, it's kind of a stress hormone designed for acute stress, not chronic stress, and elevates to basically break down energy or help your body naturally respond to a stressor in your environment. So, so cortisol can be obviously a good thing then, right? I mean, you need it for temporary ideally, stress. Yeah. So ideally, in a perfect world, you wake up in the morning and let's say you want to go work out. You need a little bit of cortisol to break down some energy. If you have flatlined your cortisol, which we can talk about later, if you've kind of moved through the stages of um, various hormonal complications, if your cortisol is depleted, you're not going to feel super great either. So you don't want it super, super low. You don't want it super, super high. It's all about the balance of these hormones. So cortisol, for example, if you have a little bit in the morning, you want to go train, it helps you break down energy, you can circulate some blood glucose. But when it's elevated and not controlled, or maybe our stress is out of whack, our nutrition is out of whack, or we're training at an inappropriate volume and intensity or duration, that's when we start to run into issues where our circadian rhythm, which is kind of the uh, biological clock of cortisol, can be kind of misconfigured. So that can create some problems in itself. So cortisol can be good, it can be bad. It's kind of all about the balance and making sure that you have the right amounts of cortisol at the right time of the day. Do you try to, do you actually recommend people train in the morning because of that spike in cortisol? Yeah. So that's, that's a tricky question. I think it depends on the person, but it certainly wouldn't hurt if you naturally have problems falling asleep at night. I think it can support a healthy circadian rhythm. I think if you've successfully trained in the evening and that's what works best for your schedule, the bottom line is like, we still need you to train to be optimally healthy. I can't take your training out. So priority number one is just get it done and fit it in where you can in a way that's not going to disturb your sleep. So for the people who do train in the evening and it ends up impacting their sleep, I typically ask them to train in the morning, which is kind of a natural way to help your body reset. There's some conflicting studies on it. So it's hard to definitively say like hundred percent, yes, train in the morning, but um, those would be some of the applications or cases where, I would use that with a client. So it's tough too, because like there was a study that showed, um, they actually showed, I want to say it was either exactly three or 4 PM is the best time to train. And the reason they concluded to this was basically because, well, they actually didn't have any specific reason. They just saw the best results. But what the, the researchers kind of alluded to was maybe you've been moving all day. So your joints are looser. You have more space in your, in your spine because your discs aren't compressed after sleeping. Um, you've probably ate more meals, more lubrication, more hydration, stuff like that. Um, but then there's this issue with the cortisol. And in my mind goes, if you're constantly like up and then down, up and then down with cortisol, it can, it can kind of screw with things. Right. And if you have, so that's another thing too, though. Like if you have someone who has a flexible schedule and can train at 3 PM, that's awesome. But typically you know, I'm going to say for most of the trainers and coaches out there, how many of your clients are working more of an eight to five or a nine to five job right. training at PM maybe isn't super realistic. Whereas, you know, Cody, maybe you can train in the afternoon and it works with your schedule. You know, that 3 PM time, I think probably based on your strength measures and your central nervous system being awake longer, like you said, having a little bit more fluid in your joints, less spinal compression, um, you're a little bit warmer 
throughout the day and you've probably had several meals. Whereas if you go in the morning, you're kind of basing it off of what you've eaten the night before. And then if you can get a pre-training meal in, that'll certainly help. But for the most part, I think, you know, that training time just comes to getting it in when you can. There are obviously pros and cons of each time in each situation. Yeah. You kind of have to kind of have to weigh that as a coach and determine what's going to be best for the person, uh, depending on what kind of phase they're in in their training. I love it too, man, because like every time you say basically adherence is the most important thing. And I think it's important to keep bringing that up because as we start talking about the science, it could be really fucking cool, but you have to remember that if you can't consistently do it in the morning, then it doesn't matter what your cortisol is doing. Um, do you, do you find anybody or is there any studies that allude to like people having more sensitive, uh, cortisol spikes or cortisol levels, or just sensitivity to training, elevating that cortisol or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just curious if there's way people, people can understand more of like, well, because I am blah, 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 or I have blah, blah, blah. I'm probably not going to train in the afternoon because it's going to, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping because cortisol is going to go up adrenaline. It's going to mess my sleep. Um, is there any way to determine those things? I think that gets pretty, complex and the easiest thing might just be keeping like you have a calendar or you keep a training log anyways i would write down like how you're sleeping on the days or the day after you train at that time i wouldn't make it so complicated that you can't break down all of these biological factors i mean if you had some blood work or something that would be awesome because then you could kind of use that to determine what's going on with your cortisol levels but i think it's it's a little tricky to say because then you're also diving into things like with sleep, it's also partially related to neurotransmitters and to expect a client or even a coach to kind of manage that on their own and handle all those factors. I feel like you're going to stress yourself out trying to balance it. But in terms of the sensitivity to stress, which I think was part of the original question, I definitely think people vary in their sensitivity to stress. That can be training volume as a type of stress, nutritional stress. Some people can go into a deeper calorie deficit without um, as steep of ramifications. And then lastly, probably just life stress. How well can you manage and balance your life? And what kind of remedies do you have in place to help you deal with that outside stress that's not training stress? And depending on your ability to do that, that's gonna impact your body's natural stress response. So I think it's partially biological, but I think it's also kind of what environment are you creating for your body to manage those stressors? Speaking of like tracking biofeedback, do you have any markers for people to use so they can understand if they may have um, cortisol levels that are out of whack or spiking at the wrong times or staying chronically elevated? Um, just because I know a lot of people will listen and go, well, fuck, I don't have the money to go get all this stuff tested or I don't have time to go to the doctor. Um, so do you have anything that people can take away before we get into the weeds where they can be like, okay, if I can't go get a blood test, I can at least look at X, Y, Z. Yeah. So start with, um, sleep, energy levels, like you should be able to, you know, it doesn't have to be every day, but if you need to crank yourself up a little bit for a training session, um, that should be feasible. If you feel flat all the time, that's probably not a good sign. Um, so sleep, hunger, energy levels, appetite, and, um, that ability to kind of drive and get going. Also, um, there are certain feelings of like overwhelmed, but that kind of varies person to person. But I'd say look at some of that biofeedback, which you should be kind of tracking and monitoring anyways, if you need to. Um, fortunately, with cortisol, you can actually do some salivary testing. So there are some options out there and at different price points where 
if you're not trying to go like super into the weeds or you know make a mortgage payment on blood work that's kind of like how you can start and and work your way towards getting additional information but those would be like the four or five that i'd probably start with on the biofeedback side and you're saying if those things are not good then people might have out whack cortisol yeah so it'll show up differently in person but let's say you have sleep disturbances um your appetite is like either you have none or you know maybe there's something else crazy going on it's going to vary person by person but um you know, and especially if, if you have consistent macros and you're noting, noticing these changes and you have less variables going on, I think that's important. Um, as far as, so that was sleep, hunger, energy levels, obviously like if you feel great and you're pretty wired going into the gym, that's a good thing. Um, and you just don't necessarily need like 500 milligrams of caffeine to initiate that response. You'd want to test it at kind of a modest dose or kind of your baseline naturally and see if you're able to kind of achieve that performance or if you feel like you can activate your nervous system through like regular dynamic warmups and mobility and stuff like that. Can we, we should probably take a step back and talk about, um, just so people can understand a little bit more too. Can you touch on what the cortisol curve should look like and how that should feel? Like I know that, you know, cortisol should actually wake you up a little bit in the morning. Um, so you shouldn't feel super groggy and like, I can't get out of bed. Um, but how should that taper off? What should your energy levels be throughout the day? What should that cortisol curve look like? Um, and then how does that relate to your uh, circadian rhythm? So it certainly spikes at different time, like not, you know, mine might be 8 a.m. and Cody's might be seven or nine. It's not like an exact time per se, but the curve that Cody's talking about is cortisol is not like a bell curve. If you're thinking of basic math, if you're looking at a chart, um, kind of sloping it with your X and Y axis. So over time throughout the day, um, you should have a cortisol peak relatively early and then it should taper off where in the evening, uh, you should have cortisol going down and essentially your melatonin production should go up, which is that hormone that can help you sleep uh, from your pineal gland. So you really shouldn't have those chronically elevated cortisol levels in the evening. If you do have them elevated in the evening, that can give you that wired and tired feeling where you like can't go to bed. So that's kind of what the natural curve would look like. And the way it fits into your circadian rhythm is in a perfect world. Um, you know, you're going to bed at a reasonable time, getting a decent amount of sleep, which I'd say is probably more than if you can get seven or eight hours or more. That's awesome. Uh, obviously, there are individual responses that'll vary depending on the person. But I know for me, I typically feel my best in terms of managing that stress and same with clients when they can kind of have kind of a set bedtime, wake up the cortisol responses in the morning or maybe around training and then through nutrition or supplementation and just kind of general life balance, we can bring it back down. So by the end of the day, when we need to go to sleep, cortisol comes back down and melatonin kind of replaces that and goes up a little bit. Are you familiar with any, um, I have like just a couple of random questions that are coming to my mind now as we talk about this. Are you familiar with any research um, saying that meal timing has an effect on this that might um, improve this uh, circadian rhythm or cortisol levels? And the reason I ask is because um, I remember Eric Helms uh, citing a, a study in one of his books, uh, I think it was the muscle and strength pyramids, but basically talking about how they found that if you have a set eating routine, um, and I'm assuming it would be the same with sleep, that your insulin sensitivity can actually improve and you're probably going to lose more body fat, but it had nothing to do with three meals versus six. 
It had everything to do with your body getting used to a schedule. Like, okay, you eat four meals a day at these times. I can regulate to that. I can start producing energy better. Do you know if cortisol has any similar effects or similar relations? I think it would naturally just derive from that food schedule because when you, there are only a few things that naturally oppose cortisol in the body. One is insulin. Um, one is going to be, so sleep naturally can oppose cortisol or help you manage stress and food. Um, well, food is kind of that precursor to insulin because we'll have blood glucose circulating and um, that can kind of counterbalance it as well. So I, I don't know of any specific concrete evidence, but I would venture to say that the study that cited um, that is cited in his book would probably have some decent application in terms of what we're talking about with cortisol. I have some theories as well, which are less on um, like when you eat your six meals a day, but in terms of controlling cortisol and improving your hormonal profile, essentially like around your workout period because of the relationship between food um, and that those cortisol levels. Cause it's really, there's only so much you can do while you're awake to balance out those stressors. Um, until you essentially go to sleep. And so that's kind of where we would end up in a discussion on like the role of carbohydrates and stuff like that. That's actually the next thing I was going to ask you. So let's, let's dig into that. I'd love to hear your theories. Um, and if you can touch on number one, how we can optimize cortisol levels around training. Um, and I would love to hear the, the influence carbohydrates have around your workout with insulin and cortisol, but then also intra-workout carbs, because this is like a super big debate. Um, and I think depending, I think it, it matters with a lot. Like I've even heard Christian Thibodeau talk about depending on your neurotype and the type right. of neurotransmitters you're dominant in, it can have a big effect. But then there's people like uh, um, Charles Poliquin, for example. He is a firm believer that you shouldn't have intra-workout carbs. You should save them for post-workout because you want cortisol elevated during your training. But if you look at who he's working with, he's working with predominantly weightlifters. So they're being explosive. They don't want to blunt that response. They need that. Um, or even CrossFitters might be the same way versus Christian Thibodeau and John Meadows. Some people are working with bodybuilders and they right. prove that it might actually be good because it stimulates recovery and muscle growth. So where do you stand on that and how can we kind of come to an answer? So I try and zoom out first and make my determinations, but I, I worked with John for a while. He's a really good guy. Um, and he kind of put a lot of the educational information out there about um, intra-workout intra nutrition and even kind of pioneered some of the formulas that were put onto the market. Charles is a super smart dude. I respect him a lot, read a lot of his content, but also if you work with regular everyday individuals who have stressful jobs that aren't Olympic athletes that have a perfect training schedule, perfect meal timing, have like an ideal training facility with a coach that's doing all the programming for them. I feel like there are definitely some different responses. He's working. Um, it's kind of that like natural selection bias, I think is I'm, I'm not the best at like my research methods terms, but the type of athlete that selects Charles or type of client that selects Charles, like also will create a certain uh, perspective that he has um, and, and everything he puts out is super solid. Now, John, on the other hand, is more focused on bodybuilding. How, like, I, I remember even like five years ago getting an email from him where I asked him about something related to strength or maybe it was like a conditioning goal. And he's just like, I don't know. He's like, I don't know about all that. He's like hypertrophy, baby. That's what I do with like a little smiley face. So John is definitely more on the bodybuilding side, focusing on like accruing as much lean muscle tissue as possible, which I think there's definitely some benefit there you also end up in a conversation about certain performance enhancing drugs are going to change your response to insulin and carbohydrates. So 
those types of athletes certainly benefit from them more, but that's not to say that a natural athlete wouldn't benefit from them as well, which is something I really like about John because he's like, he'll tell you about both cases of here's how it benefits kind of a natural trainee and the cortisol response because you want to improve muscle uh, protein synthesis and limit muscle protein breakdown. A great example he uses is when you're training, you kind of start digging this ditch in the ground. And assuming you're training without any type of nutrition, by the time you finish your workout, you're probably like six feet deep with your shovel um, with a pile of dirt next to the hole that you just put in the ground. Whereas intra-workout nutrition, it's kind of like you have a buddy next to you that's backfilling that gap or backfilling the hole that you're digging with fresh dirt, which would be your nutrition or your intra-workout beverage. Um, that's kind of helping to compensate for that, which is what's helping you when you finish the training period, starting out with a better level of muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown. Um, so in terms of my theory, I think it depends on what your goal is because you also have to account for like calories and macronutrients. Are you in a fat loss phase, muscle building phase? What's your insulin sensitivity like? For someone that has a ton and ton of body fat, I probably wouldn't give them like a ton of intra-workout carbohydrates. Um, Scott Stevenson, who's also kind of friends with John, a PhD and really smart dude, he talks about how intra-workout is post-workout. So once you've started your workout, you've done your first movement, isn't that technically post-workout for that body part or for that, that set? When that set is terminated, you've started to trigger a certain response in your body that makes your body think that the workout has like commenced. So his argument is kind of intra-workout is post-workout. Uh, my theory is that the benefits, especially for natural athletes, is that by having a little bit of insulin response and blood glucose circulating, if you can combat cortisol from getting too high and muscle breakdown from getting too high, you can basically indirectly kind of flip the equation, which also helps you with testosterone because if cortisol is not perpetually elevated, you're not having this um, steal of raw materials to manufacture those positive anabolic hormones. Um, insulin is also a very anabolic hormone, uh, which can help with muscle recovery. So that's where the carbs kind of all play in. So um, looking at both sides of it, I see where Charles is. I see where John is. I probably fall somewhere in the middle or towards um, what John Meadows believes in terms of the intra-workout carbohydrates. And it certainly depends on the type of training and sport that you're doing too. Like um, someone with CrossFit volume versus bodybuilding volume versus an Olympic lifter who maybe goes in and they're practicing like mostly movements that are testing their um, central nervous system adaptation as opposed to like a hypertrophy program that you might design. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. I actually agree with everything you just said. And I think the truth of every single situation um, with science is it's always got to be balanced and you got to kind of find fall in the middle. And then you got to think about too, like it, I like the point you made about fat loss because I think too, if people are in a deficit and they don't want to use their calories that they have on intra-workout carbs, like don't worry about it because it is splitting hairs. Yeah. Um, a, a application I like to use it in. Five percent. What's that? I was saying, so, you know, we talk about splitting hairs, right? But like, if I told you that every day, if you did this, it'd make a five to 10% difference in your training, even though it's not the big rocks, like the big rocks are your macros, your big rocks or your periodization with your strength training program. But if I told you that I have this little rock that every single day is going to move you closer to your goals and you can slide that little pebble along the scale of progress towards your kind of ultimate physique, I bet, you know, nine out of, you know, most people are going to take that deal hands down. So I think it's, it is kind of, we do get in the weeds a little bit with it. You, it is debatable as far as 
um, the science and the application with individual clients. But um, if I need to completely correct a hormonal profile or I need to really shift someone's response um, or someone's willing to use those intra-workout essential amino acids and, and carbs, there's a lot of science and literature backing it. I think even um, ISSN, their 2017 position statement is like 100% essential amino acids during exercise are beneficial. Um, and then there are additional studies out there. I think Bolek is the guy that put it out. That's basically EAA plus carbohydrate um, has those positive effects as well. So I'm going to take that five or 10%, even if it's splitting hairs. Uh, but I certainly agree with you. There are going to be clients who are like, well, can I have like my 25 carbs from potatoes or oats or rice or whatever, and they want to eat their food. Yeah. And, and again, that's a, it's a pretty much exactly where I was going to head with that. And basically saying that, especially in the case of muscle growth, I think it's actually pretty important. Um, every guy that I have that is trying to build muscle, I almost always put it into workout unless it's a, it's a financial issue. I always try to put EAAs and carbohydrates during the workout. Cause I think it's very important. Another application I like to use it for that I would like to get your opinion on, um, is my CrossFit athletes because they are ramping up cortisol and adrenaline and their nervous system so much during training. I have found that people um, sometimes even drop body fat, but performance goes through the roof, stress levels go through the roof. Um, most hormonal markers go improve because we have that immediately post-workout, which can kind of blunt that cortisol response they have to training. Um, and I think that's a really misunderstood thing too, because after, I don't know how many years ago it was now, like the um, anabolic window became a myth and everybody thought it was like, it, it, it went from like, you have to have a protein shake with carbs like right after your workout to like you're a stupid idiot if you do it ever like don't drink a post-workout that's retarded like what you should be thinking is like well are you a super stressed out individual and are you training very intensely because it actually might be one of the best things you can do even if you're going to go eat an hour later um and i find that it helps balance stress levels so i'm wondering if you do the same or if you work with any crossfitters that uh, or alike athletes that need that for sure yeah definitely crossfit I use it a lot. Um, I, th I really think any athlete, if you're competitive, you can benefit from it. And just to clarify, like I'm, I'm a pretty firm believer that there's a huge difference in terms of intra-workout carbohydrates. So when Cody's saying like EAA and carbs, the types of carbs totally matter. Like I don't want you just having, you know, table sugar or whatever. There's been a lot of evolution over the years in terms of the type of carbohydrate that you can use like highly branched cyclic dextrin there's not a ton of studies but in terms of the actual efficacy with real world athletes and clients works really well doesn't seem to add a ton of body fat it's like a very effective amount of macros and calories that you could take in that are going to have a lot of benefits so with crossfit yes bodybuilding yes um i know john even like keeps it in if you ever do a contest prep with him like he'll keep your intra-workout carbs in uh, throughout that whole period. Now, you know, when they did the study that was showing like the anabolic window is a myth, I think, yeah, there's some validity to like, don't freak out about like the 15 minute difference in when you have a protein shake. But also what's really cool about what John talks about is, you know, have the intra-workout drink, go home, like have a solid food meal, like eat your dinner of protein, carbs, and like a mo moderate amount of fat, um, which is usually like steak or rice, potato, whatever, in, in his types of nutrition plans. So I think it, it got people to stop freaking out about like the second they drop the weight, having whey protein, because I think a lot of things can impact how quickly you digest your whey protein. I think as the science has advanced and the nutrition has become more advanced, things like EAAs or uh, peptides like uh, Pepto-Pro or something like that, which is a hydrolyzed casein, um, those actually 
do digest more rapidly in your small intestine. The thing about cyclic dextrin is you don't get a lot of gastric distress or upset. So someone who, like I know personally for me, if I chugged a Gatorade, that would feel heavy in my stomach because the molecules are actually larger. Um, The way they sit in your stomach is larger. So, and even though the GI might be higher on those carbs, it doesn't necessarily mean that performance wise, they're the best. So whereas, you know, I think we're both of a similar mindset where with the branch like infection, you get a little bit of the insulin response and benefit, counteract the cortisol, you start replenishing muscle glycogen, it's like 100% going towards that workout, it's really well timed and well utilized. And then you pretty much have little to zero GI upset. So it's like a really beneficial investment from that standpoint. So yeah, I'm I'm on that train, whether it's CrossFit or um, really any sort of demanding weightlifting related sport. 100% agree. I, I'm literally on the same page with everything. I actually, uh, do you know who Dax Moy is? I'm not super from. I may have read or heard of some of this stuff, but I'm not like. So he was really big in the training space. Um, he probably still is. He's from the UK and he dug into a lot of mindset stuff. I did some courses with him. And one of the things he was, one of the first guys I actually heard talking about doing um, uh, belly breathing after training to bring you back down into a parasympathetic mode. Well, the post-workout carb intra-workout stuff can actually help you do that as well. And one thing I like about it is if we take this post-workout carbohydrate, I'm all about EAAs and uh, cyclic dextrin as well. We can bring that cortisol down, kind of get you into parasympathetic mode. And then again, like you said, you don't have to rush to your meal, but by the time you do get to that meal and what he was saying with the breathing is you're probably actually going to be able to digest your meal better because you're in that parasympathetic mode, which I thought was really interesting. And I think is, is a good way to look at it too, because now that post-workout meal you do have, whether it's one hour or three hours away, is probably going to go to better use because you have kind of calmed down the nervous system a little bit. For sure. Yeah. And for those of you listening um, who aren't familiar with like sympathetic, parasympathetic in the science, basically it's the difference between rest or digest or being like wired kind of fight or flight mode. So we would want to be in a rest or digest scenario when we're eating our food being relaxed post-workout and bringing that cortisol back down and being in more of an anabolic state versus um, conversely, if you are still wired and running out of the gym, not doing that breathing or not having that carbohydrate EAA intake, you haven't brought yourself back into that kind of restful state or um, you haven't removed yourself from that super heightened alert state that you were in before. Yeah. Perfect, dude. Um, so let's, uh, I don't want to like, dude, it's already been so many, so I can literally talk to you about this shit for hours. So I want to make sure we cover enough topics during the time we have, um, before we move on to the next subject, which I want to touch on testosterone for sure. Um, can you give us like uh, cortisol in a nutshell? Like it, it, think about the person listening is like, okay, I'm trying to change my body or I'm trying to help my clients change their body. What is like, if you can summarize it as quickly as possible with, just kind of like what people actually need to think about, worry about, understand, or how to like help with their cortisol levels. Um, just a, a few pieces of advice if you could. Okay. I'm going to start with a few main buckets. One is controlling your chronic stress, whether that's from work, family, um, training, training stress can fall into chronic stress, but I'll make that a separate bucket. So just controlling chronic stress from work and your environment is super important. Uh, sleep and bedtime routine, I kind of put that as a separate bucket under stress, even though can, having more sleep can lower the amount of chronic stress you're experiencing. Um, and then kind of that last bucket is you can, your body can perceive your nutrition or your training as a chronic stressor 
whether you like it or not. And that's why some people who like hyper respond to a reverse diet where you add food back in, that's because their body was essentially chronically stressed by the calorie deficit they were in and they needed a diet break. So you could be chronically stressed in various different parts of your training or your nutrition. But if you think about those three or four buckets that I just talked about, you can think like, okay, is like my life under control? Do I have practices for balancing kind of my stress and my happiness? Do I have my sleep under control? And then move to that training and nutrition bucket. Because I think a lot of people live in that, um, you know, they think of cortisol and fat loss and belly fat gain and all of that stuff, but they don't realize like there's some pretty simple concrete stuff you can do in your life to get a positive start. And then you can start tooling with all the things Cody and I just dived into where if I have someone who's already pretty lean and they just want to continue to optimize their hormonal profile and prevent cortisol from getting high during training and stuff like that, they're kind of on the other end of the spectrum where they're using these advanced strategies like intra-workout nutrition. And that still kind of falls in that last bucket of training and nutrition. I think that's huge, man. And I think just to touch on that before we move on is like people need to look at this like even if you separate it like uh, lifestyle, stress and sleep, and then nutrition, and then training as a separate bucket, I would look at those three as like your prerequisites to actually train. Like if you're not focused on your stress, your sleep, your lifestyle, and your nutrition, I don't think you have the right to train super hard and, and implement these intensity factors that we talk about with training or intra-workout nutrition or any of that. Like um, I love the way you paraphrased it, but I just think people need to look at it more as like not extras or like optimizing, like those are the requirements that you need to do that stuff before you move on to hard training. Right. Like you use pyramids a lot, but if you think of it as like a step ladder or kind of a bottom rung, like your, your lowest hanging fruit or easiest step to hit is like life stress and sleep. Because if, if you have those under control, you're going to be pretty resilient um, unless you're totally jacking up your nutrition and absolutely murdering your body with training, um, which still happens by the way. So more on that later. But as far as like, if you can hit those two bottom rungs, you're in much better standpoint when you come to a coach um, or even if you're managing your training and nutrition on your own, you're kind of already at that next level to start evaluating hormones and thinking about those advanced concepts. So let's dig into testosterone, man, because I know you're, you're a guru with this. Um, I would love to know, like, I mean, first, where's, uh, where's the society at, I guess? Like, because I know there's been a big decline um, in testosterone as a whole in the entire world, practically, especially the United States. Um, so let's touch on that, like where the society is with testosterone and why it's so important to have higher testosterone levels as a man. For sure. So, and, and ladies out there, you need testosterone too. You just produce less of it because it's partially um, what's coming from a different part of your body, number one, but um, don't totally write it off as we're moving into this male oriented section of the podcast because it's important for you too. So testosterone levels in general, specifically for guys, are anywhere from like a third to half of what they would have been in our grandparents if you simply look at kind of the last 100 years or so. So that's a pretty substantial decline. I've seen different levels and biomarkers depending on the reference ranges, but the bad news is, is that the labs and our doctors keep changing the reference range further and further and further down when really testosterone should still continue to be elevated. So as a society, we're seeing um, lower levels being the norm or what's considered normal really isn't optimal at all. So that's kind of our current status quo of testosterone. The reason it's important for males is your muscle recovery, your energy levels. Even as someone, if you're more career oriented and you just train for fun or to look good, having tes testosterone levels optimized can even help with brain clarity versus brain fog. 
um, and just your overall quality of life. There's a lot going on right now research-wise in terms of testosterone from a longevity perspective, that balance with estrogen. Men with lower testosterone can also have certain cardiovascular risks. So don't just think of it as this thing where you're going to be this big buff guy with huge biceps. Like it does have other implications in your life. Um, also, you know, testosterone a lot of times is associated with sex or like male behavior in that way, but um, it really has way more, uh, I guess, a, a much broader scope than most people place on that hormone. So I'd like to know, um, first of all, like where, so where is the range? Um, so guys can know, cause I think I've heard multiple things. Like we know that there's, I mean, I've heard, you know, 700 is like the, like the low end of average that you need to be at. And then I've heard lower than that as well. Um, I've also heard that everybody is actually different. So like your, uh, where you should be at is like for a normal range could actually be completely different than where I'm at. So that means that the, the ranges that doctors give us are pretty much pointless because everybody is so different. Um, so where do you believe and what research have you done to just like, I guess, just give us an answer of like, where is the actual range? So if most labs, like I've seen it done through LabCorp, Quest, if you're here in the United States, there's also SpectraCell and a few other places, even, um, so when we talk about testosterone, there are several different tests. There's total testosterone, bioavailable testosterone, free testosterone, which is kind of a more of a percentage measure of testosterone. I've seen levels that are like 300 to anywhere in the 9 to 1100 as the range, as what they classify as the reference range, huge. Um, which is crazy. I, so seeing if, if 700 is somewhere like, I don't know if that's a West Coast thing. If so, like I need to move. Um, but like our range is like way, way, way different. I think it's pretty standard across medicine though. Um, bioavailable is different. It's like a slightly more expensive test in most cases. So most of the guys I see, they're getting back a panel with total testosterone on it. So that's what I'm referring to. And the differences you're talking about is you could have a guy, let's use a number a thousand, which would theoretically sound really good. They might have like terrible free testosterone, or they might be aromatizing converting a lot of that testosterone into estrogen, which is going to make them feel worse than a guy who's maybe at 600, but has good free testosterone, has his estrogen under control, just has a good balanced hormonal profile. The third major difference, excuse me, the third, third major difference is our difference in androgen receptors. So if you have more androgen receptors, uh, which is kind of this like lock and key type thing, think of a receptor as like if you had this little satellite dish and your testosterone molecule has to like come down and land on it to like activate the receptor. Um, that's kind of a oversimplified science story there. But if, uh, if, if that's what has to happen and you have more receptors to fill out, like you would need more testosterone to like feel the way someone would that maybe has a different ratio of free testosterone or different ratio with their receptors. Um, there are some doctors that know way more about that than I do, but my basic understanding is what creates the difference is ratios of testosterone to free testosterone, looking at the other things that um, kind of mitigate the effectiveness of our testosterone, like sex hormone binding globulin, which is SHBG, cortisol, prolactin, uh, and estrogen, which uh, even though it's classified as a female hormone, guys need it as well. It's just, we can't make it without converting testosterone into estrogen. So that's kind of the, in a nutshell, the different tests and uh, what can cause our levels to go up or down and why people feel a little bit different. Even if say, like we have slightly different levels by a hundred points, but we'd have to look at this whole other side of the picture to determine like who actually has like the better testosterone markers. 
So would you say that, and I've heard Travis Zipper talk about this too, like more so than the exact number, um, which makes sense because there's so many different numbers you could be looking at. And then depending on what your number is over here, it can affect what it is over here. Um, should you be more looking at like biofeedback? Like if you have good libido, you're sleeping well, you're training hard, you're building muscle, like you probably shouldn't overthink this or overstress it. Um, and then two, if you should go get a test, what do you recommend people actually look at? Because there's a lot of stuff you just talked about and a lot of different numbers. Yeah. Um, if you have a client that's coming to you that thinks they have low testosterone, what do you tell them to go do? So what's interesting is a lot of people don't think that they actually have the low levels or they're not experiencing it in a way that would be like classified in the traditional sense. So usually the conversation comes up because of something biofeedback related or, um, you know, I'm a great example of this. So when my levels are not optimal where they should be, the differences I notice are in my immunity. So like my immune health, how quickly I get sick and how easily I get sick kind of during that cold and flu season. Um, my ability to actually accrue and gain new muscle tissue. So I can make a lot of neurological adaptations to strength just by training. And even like 50 pounds ago when I was much smaller, um, I was making a lot of strength gains in the gym, but not getting the equivalent hypertrophy gains, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's when I started doing that extra digging and kind of seeing, okay, these are the implications of like having better testosterone levels can help you from a hypertrophy standpoint because of everything that's going on in your body. Uh, typically when people come in, if, if they know they want to get it looked at as far as coming to me, they want labs or maybe they have labs from their doctor. I always recommend, like, it's still good to have the total or bioavailable testosterone. Um, having the free testosterone is good. Looking at your estrogen levels, so E2 is estradiol on your labs is very important. SHBG, like I talked about. And then um, if we know you're in a highly stressful lifestyle and you can get it covered or you already have the information, the salivary cortisol is beneficial because we could, like, it gives us another angle of what could be bringing the testosterone levels down because there's so many hormones that are inverse to testosterone. And part of that has to do with where they come from. Like what are the raw materials that are ultimately letting the body decide, okay, there's a fork in a road. Do I make cortisol? Do I make testosterone? And that's an oversimplification. But for those of you listening, that kind of helps you think about like, okay, there are all these other buckets of hormones and maybe my body, like when SHBG binds onto it, it's a binding globulin. So it literally think of it as like, it's kind of blocking the effectiveness of your testosterone. And that's um, kind of a simplification or estrogen. When it's converted to testosterone, that um, would be actually aromatizing into a different hormone. So there's a lot of different things that can be going on. But I think it's definitely important to have the full picture if you are going to go in for labs because you could have what looks like a great level but have a lot of other things going on. Or you could have a low level and it would really give you a lot of context as to why your level isn't optimal or ideal or where it should be. I love that, dude. So what about, um, let's talk about TRT real quick. I'm curious of a couple things around this. Number one, just where your stance is on it. Um, number two, you said you added 50 pounds of muscle, which is a ton of mass, man. And, and I don't know if some people probably might not know your story, but I know you had a traumatic injury that actually caused some of these issues. Did you yeah. have to go the TRT route? Because I know um, more people than, more often than not, people actually do have to go that route. Um, I don't think people realize how many people have to go this route and take TRT, yeah. testosterone replacement therapy. Um, so my question around it is basically, did, were you, did you have to go that route? What's your stance on it? Um, and do you feel like sometimes that's just what people have to do? Because some natural remedies just don't work as well or just aren't going to fix things when it gets down to a certain point. 
I know yeah, that was a so lot of questions all wrapped in one, but if you can. A lot of questions. So just to circle back, like I know I mentioned the big number 50 pounds. This started when I was like 17. I'm 29 now. So over 12 years, like it's a, it's not as much, it's not like 50 pounds in a year. Oh my God, this guy got jacked. But right. like, you know, it's, it's still a lot still of a lot, dude. time. Um, whereas, you know, I hovered between like 185 pounds or so right now. Um, I, I was just really unhealthy and really skinny. I'm not like some massive, like 240 pound dude. I kind of hover between like 185, 190, something. So, you know, depending on, uh, some number of variables. So, you know, for me, I, for those of you who haven't maybe heard this on some of the other podcasts or anything else, like I actually, they started kind of looking my doctors because I had a head injury and I got an MRI. I had blood work done. They saw enlargement of my pituitary, which is basically some swelling, some cysts that were going on in there. Mine was more of a fluctuation in different levels because um, I think because of the stress that my body had maybe experienced combined with, I didn't know a ton about nutrition at the time as an athlete and trying to be active. I think I had a combination of variables that were negatively impacting my levels. Um, I went through all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, right now, like, no, I'm not on TRT or anything like that, but they did test like, because I was so young, they tested different medicines and I'm like the probably worst example. Like you wouldn't want to necessarily model my situation in talking about TRT in general, because they even assumed like, Oh, well maybe he has like a pituitary prolactinoma. So we're going to put him on this like, uh, anti or this dopamine agonist drug that's going to act on these tumors and all these other things. They literally had so many theories for me that like, that's kind of what, um, I had to manage as I was moving through um, my training and nutrition, but you know, the majority of that time I've also spent like not having to deal with medicine or prescriptions or whatever. Cause I've kind of gotten it more under control now. Um, I'm not opposed to TRT. I think some people really need it for longevity for uh, mental health. Uh, I think if you have low testosterone levels, uh, your brain does need a certain amount of testosterone as well as a male. It can be very helpful um, in terms of things like your heart, I know we've kind of talked about that earlier, but low estrogen, low testosterone can be a cardiovascular risk uh, for men. If you're interested in more of the longevity side of things, Dr. Ralph Esposito has like a ton of great content out there. Um, I think HRT, you need to be very careful. Like if you're younger, uh, what you would want to look at is like your FSH and your LH. So LH signals from your pituitary um, to your testicles to essentially produce testosterone. FSH has to do with um, kind, kind of similar, but it's follicle stimulating hormone. If you have those levels and it's like triggering from your brain, that could be a sign that like you might have a chance at it coming back, but there could also be like a missing. So your HPTA access all runs on a feedback loop. So that's why you want to look at those other numbers to see like, okay, what feedback's going where and what is that feedback saying? Um, and that's why they tried like all sorts of different uh, prescription drugs and stuff. I, I was seeing an endocrinologist for a very long period of time. Fortunately, um, I kind of just have like my primary care doctor now and then a guy that I trust that's kind of a more of an expert on this than I am. But um, so no, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. I think you just have to be careful. Uh, both older and younger men can really benefit from it. I think you just need to get blood work done consistently, look at things like your hematocrit levels. You need to manage estrogen because just plopping testosterone in your body and not thinking about the consequences, you can actually create a much worse um, situation. So I, I was fortunate that we figured a lot of my stuff out by the time I was probably like in my early 20s. So I've pretty much had like the last 
um, eight or nine years or so where like I've been able to pretty much like other than maybe a few instances of a few months where like some stuff went out of hand. Um, most of it has just been, been controlled though, based on my endocrine system. Like if I had to forecast, like I would not be surprised if I was the type of person that like might actually need, um, medical intervention. Um, uh, so we'll see, it's kind of, uh, remains to be seen. But for those of you listening, like my, my scenario is kind of weird. Like I had a very severe concussion and a bunch of like stressors going on my body at the same time. Um, and there were actual, like, you know, I, have like the MRI of my brain and all this other stuff and blood work that I was getting done literally every month. So really strange situation, probably not your classic example of like, um, when people are put on some type of prescription, whether it's, uh, an off label use for raising your testosterone levels or whether you're on TRT. Um, usually the classic example is kind of from either life stress or weight gain or, um, just kind of a natural, decline in testosterone, a guy would be put on testosterone replacement therapy, uh, which there are like a million kinds on that as well. So um, just make sure you find a good doctor because there's a lot of um, mixed information out there about TRT, I would say, um, because there's like every year or so they're coming out with new kinds. So you just need to be, be mindful of that and learn as much as you can. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. And so I'm working on an NCI course on uh, male hormones. And so there'll be a little bit on there as far as the, the TRT side, but having an expert that can actually guide you through medically is super important, um, which may be outside the realm of like just a primary care doctor, or urologist, or even an endocrinologist. You might want to find someone who's a specialist in that. So I think it's important to, for people to know that, because you kind of alluded to this, like don't jump to conclusions essentially if you go get your testosterone tested and it's low don't immediately listen to somebody that says oh you need trt and go start that route um so people know can you briefly just let them know like if you tested low on this make sure you're looking at xyz as well because it sounded like there's some receptors and different things that can be fixed yeah. to help your levels yeah potentially so i don't know i i don't really know a ton about fixing androgen receptors i think that's probably like our next wave of science as there's like some products out now that uh, different pharmaceutical companies are conducting clinical studies and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so if you have low testosterone, like take a look at your cortisol levels, see like is my testosterone low because a lot of it is turning into estrogen. There could be a body fat issue. So if you carry, if you're a very heavy set guy and you have a lot of body fat, um, you actually have uh, more of the aromatase enzyme or you have more receptors to essentially uh, convert the testosterone into estrogen, which is just compounding the problem. So losing the body fat, controlling the estrogen is actually going to help your testosterone levels right away. Some people don't have the best nutrition. I wouldn't go as far to say that they're malnourished, but zinc deficiencies, vitamin D deficiencies, like all sorts of nutrition related problems can impact your testosterone as well. Um, I would say like, try a couple of those things, monitor it with your doctor, get blood work. Like if you're not seeing the panel or the labs budget all, okay, then maybe proceed with caution and like, you know, ask, go and investigate your TRT scenario. But um, I think there are some things you can do both herbally and then in terms of minerals and um, your, your lifestyle that can help a lot. Um, I was kind of the case of, all right, so this kid like works out a bunch. He's eating pretty healthy, especially for his age. And like, but he has this like other stuff going on um, how can we like monitor this over time and, and see kind of what's going on? And that's why I say mine was kind of mixed with the 
pituitary trauma. So um, any type of physical trauma can impact your testosterone levels. In those cases, I definitely think it, it might not make sense to just like try food and natural stuff. You might actually need to go the route of a prescription or something like that. So let's talk about the natural stuff real quick. I think that um, it goes to, like I hear a lot of talk about two different ways. Like there's some people that believe in supplements, natural herbs, um, specific foods, eating more fat in your diet, these different things that are going to significantly improve your testosterone. And then there's other people that are like, yeah, it'll help, but it's really not going to do much. Like those things are like not going to make the building blocks. Now, obviously this shit takes time, right? If your testosterone levels are low, you're not going to start taking um, a natural herb or ashwagandha and then boom, your testosterone levels go up and, and you're fixed. So can you talk about like the realistic approach of how you can fix that through herbs and, and nutrition, what's important, how long it takes, so on and so forth? Yeah. So assuming you don't have the body fat issue that I just talked about where you're converting a lot of testosterone into estrogen, if you can eat around maintenance and have an even distribution of calories where, um, you know, you're setting your protein enough for muscle recovery and like the scientifically backed like dosing for your body size, uh, basing your carbohydrate off your activity level and then fat also based off of your kind of body size and some biofeedback and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, if you have that under control and you're on a balanced diet and you're getting a good source, you know, I always recommend just kind of spreading the fats across like, like um, a few different buckets. So have some free range eggs, grass fed beef, like get some healthy oils, plant-based fats as well, whether that's like nuts being plant more plant-based or avocado, um, olive oil, things like that. So you have these options to get a mix of like animal fat, plant-based fat, et cetera. So you need some of that because cholesterol is a precursor to pregnenolone, which is kind of the mother hormone that we talked about that starts kind of like this whole process down this pathway of making testosterone or any other hormone. Um, moving beyond that, if your nutrition is under control, uh, I would look at things like adaptogens and some herbs, not just because it's like the best test booster ever, but because by controlling your stress and controlling your cortisol, you can let testosterone do its thing. So that's kind of that next bucket I look at along with intra-workout nutrition. I think those things, I think those things can have a bigger impact. I think, you know, whether it's infomercials, or the local nutrition store selling some random black bottle of like Testo Jack 9,000 million. Um, you know, that, that could be why, you know, the supplement industry gets a bad rap, but there are things out there that are clinically studied with like, um, with the valid dose can actually make a difference. You know, that might be 50 or hundred points on your labs, or it might just be subjective in how you feel, but that's still worth something if it makes you feel better and, and, uh, helps your biofeedback and your symptoms and stuff. So I usually start with like the herbs and adaptogen route and then, you know, zinc, vitamin D, other minerals are, are big as well going into that selenium. Um, there's some research out there now about boron as well. So there are definitely some natural things you can do after you have your diet under control. Can you name them real quick? Because I know people are going to listen to this and be like, well, what were the supplements? <laughs> like, yeah, give us, give us yeah, yeah. So adaptogens, like just think of it as like, all right, these are your leads and your herbs that you can either take in the morning or at night that are going to help regulate cortisol. Everyone responds differently. So uh, Travis is famous for saying kind of if there's one supplement in the water, like ashwagandha would be kind of that supplement. But you want to look for like a KSM 66 extract or like a sensorial ashwagandha. These are like specific extracts. Um, so I've, I've taken the KSM 66 myself. I like that. And, and we'll dose that as well. 
Um, the next, so that's just, that's kind of in the adaptogen and testosterone category, that one's mixed, but there's other stuff out there. Um, you know, rhodiola is looked at a lot for cortisol levels and, um, on the herbal side for testosterone, some people believe that long jack, uricoma, long polia, um, which is, those are the same thing, by the way, depending on the extract, um, fenugreek, those items can serve as aromatase inhibitors, which would preserve your natural production and uh, long jack and stuff can help with some of the like libido and energy elements that people talk about when accompanied accompanied with low testosterone. So those would be um, a couple herbal examples. On the mineral side, I'd look at you know a good having adequate amounts of your primary minerals and things like zinc, magnesium, um, selenium. Those are all going to be important. I think boron, the dose they were looking at was between 10 milligrams and 40 milligrams. Don't like do a little bit of research on that one because that's a little bit newer, but I've seen it included in a couple products. Um, but I'm not, I'm not fully certain of the mechanism that that acts on your testosterone levels, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, connecting the first subject we talked about with cortisol and testosterone, just real quick, because you mentioned like so-and-so can help your cortisol so people understand we need to balance and improve cortisol in order to improve testosterone. Yeah. So we do need to balance cortisol in order to improve testosterone. We can do that through lifestyle factors or adaptogens. The reason we need to do that is because there's this thing that happens called the pregnenolone steel, which is essentially pregnenolone, DHEA. There are all these precursors to our anabolic hormones in our body or to corticosteroids like cortisol. So think of these as they're all kind of labeled as steroid hormones um, and they're manufactured from uh, cholesterol. What happens is uh, cortisol inhibits uh, this thing in your body called star protein. So cortisol inhibits star protein, which is in your mitochondria that impacts your production of testosterone. So it's kind of like um, kind of screwing you out of your own natural testosterone levels. So think of it that way, like not only does stress impact test, but um, by controlling cortisol, you can kind of mitigate the impact that stress has on testosterone. And that's one of the reasons why. One is that pregnenolone steel that we kind of talked about. And then the other is kind of the star protein function um, in your cells that are going on with hormone production as well. Got it. Um, real quick, just because my mind went this way and it was kind of funny. You mentioned fenugreek um, when you're talking about supplements, um, which has some good research with testosterone, but it also has some research to help women who are pregnant produce or uh, post-pregnancy produce more breast milk. Um, and the funny thing, and the reason I'm asking this is because uh, my fiance got it because she was like, oh, like somebody mentioned this, like it's going to help produce. She never took it. and It was just sitting in our pantry and she came downstairs and I was like taking it in the morning with my vitamins. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, no, it's, it's kind of like a testosterone thing too. She was like, no, it's not. And I was like, I swear to God, but now it's kind of confusing. Like how is it going to do both of those things? Yeah. So, um, in terms of breastfeeding, what ends up happening actually in pregnant females is you get elevations in prolactin. Um, the, the way fenugreek can work in guy, like I've also seen companies and formulas trying to include it for insulin sensitivity, I guess the best way you could describe it is certain herbals have different impacts in different people. Um, and that's something to take note of, like as you're kind of doing your own supplement experimentation. I don't know the exact mechanism of fenugreek and breastfeeding, but now that you mentioned it, I feel like I need to do a little research and figure it out. But um, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I wonder if it has something to do with um, estrogen and prolactin, which it certainly could. Um, 
but that's that's definitely really interesting because as far as my basic understanding is from a breastfeeding standpoint that after pregnancy um, the female body is essentially producing uh, these this larger amount of prolactin which also serves one as like kind of that signal it's related to breastfeeding but I think it also is kind of um, there's this excerpt of why zebras don't get ulcers they talk about how in African tribes like elevated levels of prolactin can actually serve as birth control um, so I don't know the exact study behind that but that's where you see prolactin as this like secondary kind of stress hormone behind cortisol like it's telling the body obviously pregnancy and breastfeeding is a stressor in the sense that it's very calorically demanding from a nutrient standpoint so it would make sense for a woman not to have another baby immediately if they just had a baby and they're breastfeeding because that guarantees the survival of the child. So bringing us back to like our prehistoric roots here um, as basic cavemen and women, like I think that's some of the integration. How that ends up as fenugreek and testosterone, I will have to uh, look into you for look um, look at for you, man. That's hilarious. Um, so keep, like to finish out this testosterone thing, I want to talk about um, calories versus fats because it's been known that like if your fat intake is too low, you're not getting the right type of fats in your diet, um, you might suffer low hormone levels in general, but obviously it's been linked to testosterone quite a bit. Um, and you mentioned cholesterol and some things earlier. My question would be, number one, do you place more importance on the amount of fats per day or the type of fats your clients are consuming to produce better testosterone? And then two, which is more important in your mind, overall calories or fats? Overall calories or fats. And then what I mean by that is, is I think even if you're, let's say you go into a deficit, even if you have plenty of fats and the right type of fats, if you're in a deficit for too long, your testosterone is going to tank. Right, right. There's, there's a good study on that too, which is if you haven't read it, um, Andrew Perdue who actually owns AP mm -hmm. Fitness and works with a lot of like natural competitors. He, his senior year, his thesis or, um, or study was basically on natural uh, bodybuilders and the transient hormone changes that they go through. And so just a calorie deficit in general, regardless of even keeping like I don't, I don't know if they looked at your specific fat levels, but a calorie deficit does impact your hormone profile. Part of it's because of sleep. It really, you end up like on this whole, like there are different cycles of um, hormones and, and consequences for your decisions. I think a calorie deficit in general will impact your hormones if you do it for a really long period of time. Um, the question about fats and other macronutrients and calories, I'd say I always emphasize quality quality fats because of the role of inflammation in your body and um, what healthy fats can do for you from your brain to your joints. And uh, like I said, that inflammation perspective, and you also get the hormone benefits of having this, this great raw material. The amount is going to vary depending on the person and different sensitivities because you might have to go higher with fat. If someone doesn't have great insulin sensitivity, that doesn't mean that like that extra 10 or 20 grams of fat is like magically making like, tons more hormone you know what i mean so um and i think if you even if you keep fat high if you bring carbs too low and you're losing that insulin response and you can't really manage cortisol around training and muscle protein breakdown i think that has consequences as well so i'm a very you know case-by-case -case guy in terms of like how someone is responding to their diet but um if i had to make a generalization like i'd rather kind of set your protein level and then slowly play with both carbs and fats rather than just like drastically subtracting one macronutrient and um you know putting you in in that type of deficit for carbs or fats specifically 
Love it, man. I think balance is always the key. And just, and like you said, I think it's hard too, because there's so many, as a podcaster, there's so many very specific questions I want to ask people to give the listeners an answer. And in my mind, I'm already going, well, it really depends. And people hate the answer. It depends. But at the end of the day, everything is very individualized. So um, I can't expect you to dial in too, too remotely. Um, so I want to, I want to touch on one last thing before we do wrap up. Cause I know we are, we have been going on quite a bit. Um, and I think that's the thing with hormones, man. It's like everything is fucking connected and we could literally go right. on. That's why there's gotta be a part two, man. We like barely scratched the surface. I know literally. And, and I was literally about to say, I think there will be, but I want to touch on insulin before we finish. Um, Part two will have to be like training's effect because I think we could go really deep into that. Um, but where does insulin play a role in all this? If you can kind of wrap it up with that, um, you don't have to go too deep because I know insulin is a huge topic, but how important is insulin when it comes to hormonal balance, testosterone, cortisol, all these different things? I think it's really important. I'm going to keep it short. I'm writing an article about this that I hope to actually release in probably by October. It should be done before that, guys. Um, we're recording this kind of mid-September. But Insulin is super important because I think if you don't have great insulin sensitivity and your carbohydrates are lower and, and you're not able to really have that impact around training, uh, it's difficult because ins insulin is inverse to cortisol. So um, I think triggering it at strategic times can def definitely help with muscle gain and controlling it can definitely help with fat loss, assuming the calories are controlled um, in the examples that we're working through. So um, definitely important you have to remember it's not just the hormone, it's what effect does that hormone, so insulin specifically, have on other hormones in the body. Insulin does a lot of signaling, does a lot of shuttling. It kind of, you know, its role is to shuttle blood glucose. So you have to, you have to take a step back and remember like, okay, what are the consequences of this hormone being high or low or using it correctly at the right times? What else is it going to balance or throw out of balance? Um, and and that's important too. So if your insulin is way too high, you do get these down regulations in other areas or you're accumulating body fat. And then we're kind of back to that other issue of, okay, well, you know, someone certainly has high insulin. If they've been overweight, pounding tons and tons of carbohydrates, but now they have like estrogen conversion issue. So there's a million things that probably happen between point A and point B, but that's an oversimplified example of how you have to think of the whole picture and not just be like, oh, cool, insulin. Um, so definitely important. Be mindful of it, especially around your training. And that would be kind of my 10,000 foot view or advice on insulin. I'll talk a little bit more about it. Um, the article I'm working on is basically about the role of carbohydrates and how they might actually be the most overlooked nutrient when it comes to testosterone production. And part of that is because of the impact they have on cortisol um, and insulin as well, which then impacts testosterone. Well, I'll definitely be sharing the article because I know it'll be a beast, man. So the person listening right now who is not super muscular, is not super lean, could probably have a little bit uh, higher insulin resistance or just not super sensitive insulin. Um, what can they do today to start working on that? Or what do you recommend your clients that isn't too overwhelming of habits to implement that they can actually improve their insulin levels? So even just getting adequate amounts of sleep can improve insulin sensitivity. So the first thing I'm going to say is get your sleep have the appropriate training stimulus from a good strength training or resistance training program because all the signaling that happens with that muscle pre protein breakdown, muscle protein synthesis, we could even get into um, mTOR, GLUT4, like all these other signaling that um, I know, Cody, you probably know John Meadows talks about a lot, but like getting that resistance training in is priming your body for a certain response to carbohydrates. So being active 
changes the way your body utilizes nutrients. So if you're kind of middle of the road, be active, um, try and have a good amount of non-exercise related uh, activity or NEPA not um, kind of going, going through making sure you're, you're utilizing your nutrients, have that hard training, get adequate amounts of sleep, and you may be able to hang out near maintenance or do periods of, calorie defic- uh, of a calorie deficit without going super, super low. And I think your best angle is to have like create a periodized approach where maybe you go into deficit for a little bit, come out, have a diet break so you're not crashing your hormones and uh, make sure those elements are in place. I think if you can drill down on sleep and um, also eating quality foods and having that uh, response from training, I think can go a really, really long way in improving insulin sensitivity. There's also some supplements out there like glucose disposal agents or like specific um, things that you can add if you notice you're having an issue with carbohydrates, but I'd start with a pretty balanced approach um, and don't underestimate like a good night's sleep can, can definitely help your insulin sensitivity. There are studies out there that show that. I think it's funny how <laughs> sleep is so unbelievably important for so many damn things. And it's just tough because it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not cool. It's not exciting. But the reality is, is like 99% of people can get better results if they just focus on sleep more. And that includes me too, because being a busy individual, it's tough sometimes to get a full seven hours. But the reality is, is like, it's, it's crucial. Right. Cause I mean, we didn't even touch on like the role of the different stages of sleep and like slow wave sleep in your testosterone production. So, I mean, there's, there's literally so much guys, I think Cody and I both kind of hit that point home that, um, there, there are definitely some big things you can do just by getting that adequate rest and balancing your stimulus and recovery, which I know we both talk about a lot. Yeah. And shameless plug, um, Sam Miller's coming into the, uh, the membership site, the boom, boom elite to do a presentation that I know he's going to kill and it's going to be extremely valuable. So guys, if you want to hear more of him, definitely go in and check out the boom, boom elite. But then I, dude, I'm going to have you on again. Cause this was like so much information. I could literally go on for another hour, but I'm going to respect your time. And I'm going to ask you one final personality question because I like to do this with my guests. Um, you may have heard it before, but here is the situation. You are sitting at a dinner table and you have three empty seats in front of you. You can choose anybody to be at that table to eat dinner with you alive or dead, but they cannot be friends or family. Who is sitting at that table with you? So I, I listened to your podcast, which led to potentially overthinking this question a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, I always think back, like I was always into sports growing up. I really admired like, so at that time, um, you know, Derek Teeter was a really prominent athlete and I respect a lot of what he did in the game of baseball and like the way he conducted himself. So always been a huge fan of his. Um, but I'm such like, I'm a learning guy and like, I like to absorb that type of information. So I was trying to think of some like, what philosopher can I throw in here? And I'm like, dude, that's like not a super authentic response. So I was going to go with like classic, like nineties kid or like I was born in the eighties, but like being a kid in the nineties, kind of like Derek Jeter was throwing around Will Smith. And I feel like Robin Williams would be really cool. Like if we were all sitting on the, like he would make sure that we're all laughing periodically. And, you know, I know his story kind of, ended a little more tragically than we would have liked. So having a little bit of extra time with him, like I remember as a kid and even as an adult, like I always really appreciated his artistic side. Um, so I burned through my three, man, but I could easily could have had five because I'm really into music and stuff as well. We're having some musicians in there or some thought leaders would be really cool, but I'll uh, I'm, I'm leave it at that. And maybe you can ask me again and I can come up with another three next time. There you go. Dude, I love it. That'd be a great table, man. Before I let you go, where can everybody find all of your work? You put out a ton of great content. Perfect. I appreciate it, man. So my company is Oracle training and nutrition. The company page on Instagram is Oracle underscore coaching. 
my personal fitness journey and my uh, kind of transformation, you could say, in the content I post related to my life is at Sam Miller Science. So that's all one word. Um, my first name, my last name, followed by science on Instagram. Our website is oraclefitness.com. If you have questions more about what we talked about on the podcast today, you can always shoot me an email, which is just coach at oraclefitness.com. Perfect. I'll link all that in the description. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate it, man. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.